Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult, and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This conversation is with Nigel Edwards. Nigel has just stepped down as chief executive of the Nuffield Trust, which is a leading health think tank. And before that, he had a number of really interesting roles, including at NHS Confederation. This conversation is really timely. NHS services and health services more generally are under huge pressure and Nigel brings incredible insight to what's happening within the health system and what things might change. As you can imagine, we get into some detail about the current set of NHS reforms and the importance they put on place and neighbourhoods and the ability for local services to be more coordinated. We talk about whether that's working and whether indeed leaders within places have the time to put effort into building the right relationships and cultural elements which are really needed to create a successful place. As an example, we take a deep dive into children's health and we consider the very ambitious plans that most of the integrated care boards have for children's health and the fact that these are so ambitious and wide-ranging that the NHS on its own cannot possibly achieve them. So what conditions need to be in place? What enabling leadership needs to be in place to allow the coordinated efforts of all public services and other services to help achieve some of those really ambitious goals around children's health like obesity or children's mental health? We then move on to talk about how you create the conditions whereby a whole organisation, all levels of staff, middle management, frontline, feel empowered and able to work in a more integrated way. And we challenge this concept of the frozen middle or the permafrost that sometimes is suggested sits in the middle of public service organisations and that that is quite rigid and immovable. We also turn to the question of regional cooperation and at what level should different health activities take place? You've obviously got the national level, regional uh, integrated care boards and mayoral combined authorities, and then all the way down to, to places and neighbourhoods. So that's a really interesting part of the discussion as well. So as you can see, we cover a lot and I hope you enjoy it. Nigel, a very warm welcome onto the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation and I know a lot of people listening will know exactly who you are. But for those who don't, could you just say a little bit about yourself? Well, currently I do a portfolio of consulting work for largely for the World Health Organization, but also uh, here, here in the, in the UK. Um, and uh, I've had a long background in the last 20 or so years in health policy. Um, Last nine and a half years, I was chief executive of Nuffield Trust, which is a, a health service research and health policy think tank, a bit like the King's Fund. Uh, before that, I was at the King's Fund at KPMG part time for a couple of years. And prior to that, 
I was the policy director at the NHS Confederation, which is a membership organisation that is uh, that, that represents NHS organisations and uh, influences policy and, and speaks on their behalf. But my uh, general background was in NHS management, which I did uh, the fast track training scheme, the, the graduate training scheme, and then I did operational jobs and worked at Region. And then I went to London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to set up a health policy research and health economics uh, uh, think tank and research organisation, part of the York Health Economics Consortium. Fantastic. So you're, you're steeped in healthcare delivery and policy development and I have observed all the various changes and challenges over the years. So this this promises to be a really interesting conversation. Um, I'd like to ask you just a little bit about a couple of your roles. You mentioned your role at NHS Confed, NHS Confederation. Almost everybody will have heard of that organisation, but just could you just say a little bit about what their role is within the system? Yes, it's a, it's an interesting role. There are there are other organisations like it in in other parts of uh, of the world, but effectively it's a, a membership group. It pays a, a membership body, it charity. It charges a subscription, and for that it uh, does uh, policy development. It, it does support to members, uh, but a lot of the work was actually speaking to members about policy ideas. We've had a sort of Almost a sort of policy tornado for the last 20 years. So uh, yeah. it's quite important for uh, that. And the people making policy don't necessarily understand uh, what the concerns and, and realities are of the people who've actually got to implement their policies. Uh, there's yeah. a bit of a tendency for the, 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 the it's got better over the years, but um, certainly when I joined the conference, most of the policy specialists sort of knew what a hospital was had a vague idea about community services. And, and uh, so there was something about connecting the world of policy with the world of management. And uh, while I was there, I also, because of my background at the London School of Hygiene, thought that there was also a need to bring in um, health services research to try and bring these three different worlds, which taught different languages and different ways of looking at things and have different ways of assessing evidence and get them uh, better understanding each other. So you can have evidence based policy, but also policy that's informed by management and then research that's, that's informed by the needs of management. So that was a so sort of nice synergy of trying to uh, trying to create that. Uh, the, the conflict does other things about connecting its members um, to, to each other, uh, spreading good practice. But probably the, the, the thing that was often most valued was helping very busy operational managers make sense of all of the policy that was going on. Uh, yeah. One of the key roles, I think, um, uh, in any uh, complex system is that sense making role where you say this may look like a mess. Um, it probably is, but here's some ways that you could think about it that will help you uh, uh, navigate uh, all of that in a more effective way. I think that is a really useful role, and it certainly I get a lot from reading the papers that come from from Confed. It, it, it tends to summarise things in a really digestible way, where you just wouldn't be able to wade through the the total tonnage of policy papers that are there. And then um, a, a big part of your career a big influential part was at the Nuffield Trust so what were you what were you really proud of in terms of what what you achieved there actually I think the thing I achieved that I'm most proud of is the extent to which we developed some really good staff internally and gave people the chance to blossom and, and grow in the job that we also yeah. did some, good I some really good some really good research but actually I'm, I, I think probably the bigger you know the, the thing I'm most pleased with is the way that uh, we, we we developed some some phenomenally good Good people, and and I think the, the, the so on the policy side, one of the because the National Trust is relatively small compared with the Health Foundation or the King's Fund, um, we had to be sort of sort of slightly we had to differentiate ourselves, and, and this this sort of suited my uh, personal preferences too, which is to be not so part of the establishment. Yeah, There's a bit of a tension. This sort of hazard at the Confed as well of becoming too close to government to be very be very flattered to be invited to number 10 and to you know, yes. go, and, uh, uh, go and sign documents and, 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 and be seen to be part of that process. I, I feel feel that actually there's a, there's, it's important to be independent and to be able to say, um, actually, we don't think this is a great idea. And here's, here's a critique of what you're doing um, without without fear that you'll be cast in darkness or 
put on the naughty step is the terminology that's sometimes used. So, so I think, yeah. so I think, uh, I think we, we did, we did quite a good job there of, 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 of that. And the second thing that uh, is important, um, it was important to me and I was pleased about was, um, it's just been demonstrated by some work we've done uh, on dentistry is to be, try to be ahead of an issue before it really bubbles up. So looking for things which are important, but under-researched or under-appreciated. And uh, there has to be a good research question as well, obviously, but to say, to say, well, actually, this is really important. But no one's looking at it. So let's go and have a look at it. It became, it's become more difficult because of various issues with the person uh, writing the report on dentistry got delayed. So I ended up, a lot of other people would suddenly got interested in dentistry. So we were a bit late to that. And uh, after 10 weeks of a project on outpatients, I discovered that both NHS England and Royal College of Physicians have suddenly decided that outpatients were something to look at. So it's become increasingly difficult to keep ahead of the curve. But I would be, I would say that my, what I was yeah. about there was being able to be ready with uh, with research and thinking, particularly work we've done, for example, on the problems of small hospitals and hospitals in rural areas, where that suddenly became an issue. We had a bunch of research that was ready to, uh, uh, to ready to be used by policymakers and, and, and practitioners. Really interesting. Um, you just mentioned there uh, focusing on really important stuff that nobody's thinking about. I'd say that's a pretty long list at the minute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of work to do there. Well, indeed, and one of the problems at the minute, I think, actually, is that there's, there's and we may come on to this later, but there's probably too much at the moment, and there's a degree of saturation. And, and one of yeah. one of my, uh, my one of my thoughts on leaving a natural trust was probably, you know, if we could get on with all the stuff that we know we need to do, we'd make some major impacts. Perhaps we don't need that much more new policy just at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. So let's get into the meat of our discussion now. So integrated care boards have produced their plans over the summer and they all have wide ranging and ambitious objectives, which the NHS can't hope to deliver or get close to acting on its own. In fact, many of the designated place leads are council chief execs and exec directors. Now, a place to give an example, there's For instance, in West Yorkshire, there's an integrated care board. Within West Yorkshire, there are five places, including Leeds, Bradford, Calderdale, as examples. And each of those places has a designated lead. And that's sometimes, usually, in fact, the the council chief exec or an exec director within the council. So this new structure, do you think it will make a difference? I think the the involvement of local authorities in the way that you're describing is, is very positive from the point of view of the sort of health improvement um, and uh, alignment of, of sort of services to to to, to place. Um, that is very positive. Uh, the, the structures are complex. Accountability is not clear. I mean, the bigger risk is that, um, in, which we've seen over the years, is impatience by policymakers. We say it's all taking a long time for this stuff to, to happen. The, the structure must be wrong. We must we must change it. I suspect that what we're describing here is as good as any. It's actually not dissimilar to what you might see in, in some senses in Scandinavia, but perhaps with less of the very firm accountabilities that, that tend to be you find in the uh, in places like Sweden um, or Finland, uh, for example. So I think there's a lot to be said for it from a sort of health improvement and population health point of view. Um, it, it, it will also help probably with. Uh, the link between housing and health, which is a big issue and often uh, under thought about. Um, and it may help with some of the social care integration, which has proved distinctly sticky. The, the trick here is whether people are prepared to actually uh, go go for it for long enough to learn how to do it, and to develop the relationships, uh, develop the systems to, and, and processes and, and make it work. That, that to me is the issue well, that you can make a lot of structures work. Um, there's nothing inherently in this that seems to me to be flawed. Um, and my other attitude would be, it's the one we've got. So actually, yeah. it's interesting to speculate, but it, in a sense, we have to make it work. But I just don't think we need to do any more reorganisation for as long as possible. I, I think that point at the end that you made there is the key one. I think this structure is perfectly reasonable, but it's not the structure that's going to make the difference. It's the it's the relationships that are built. It's the continuity of leaders and you know, giving it a chance to embed 
giving a chance for the different levels. We will probably come on to this later to integrate with each other and work together. So giving it time, that's the key thing, isn't it? Giving it time. Yeah, and, and, and time and space. And one of the issues I think that I've, I've been very struck with uh, in a piece of strategy work that I was involved in in one ICB was um, just too many objectives. The NHS suffers from a lack of clarity about priorities. Yeah. Um, uh, I think uh, I saw something in the HSJ where Amanda Pritchard was saying that you know, we need to work out which of the 20 top priorities. And I, I, I think it might have been one of those spoof columns by Julian Patterson. It sounds like it because 20 is already uh, four times bigger than most organisations can manage. But, but the fact that I found it impossible to distinguish between a spoof and reality, uh, I think, tells us quite a lot about the the, the, the long term plan that the, and just uh, England published some uh, three, um, some years ago. I think um, three or four years ago. I, 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 the pandemic has distorted my um, appreciation of time. No, it was very noticeable. I mean, there was nothing in it you'd object to, but it was very comprehensive, and there's no feeling of prioritisation. And I think that's a real problem because uh, for those relationships to work, people need space and time and bandwidth. And I, I wonder whether or not we've stolen rather more of that than we should. How do politicians, how do national leaders create the authority to prioritise? Because as soon as you leave an issue off, the lobby group associated with that is up in arms that this is no longer, you know, uh, you know, government abandons this group. Yes, I'm, I think it's to be absolutely fair. You put your finger on on the real problem here, and, and that's partly due to the the way uh, the, the slightly unique way the NHS is constructed. Um, most other NHS type systems are more decentralised. Um, the role of the centre is to sort of just basically set overall standards and objectives, but 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 the detail of what the priorities yeah. are and the like, for example, in Spain, will be determined by the autonomous communities where you've got more opportunity perhaps to have a dialogue with your stakeholders about what is and isn't important. Yeah. And and it's and because it's not national, uh, perhaps it's, there's less of a lightning conductor. So I mean I think I I I sympathize with the policymakers because as you say, you, you almost can't say we're not doing it. We know that X is important. But actually, we've only got room for 10 things and yeah. X is number 11. We will get round to it. And, and, and yeah. actually, uh, we don't have a political system that really allows for that. Uh, a much more devolved yeah. arrangement would would allow at least those those discussions to be localised and maybe more more contained. But uh, we won't get into that right now. But what you it do you have an op- yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry, I was going to say, you can then have the, I mean, yeah, given that you then got local authorities running uh, and, and much more involved in places, you have got some opportunity for sort of deliberative type methodologies and ways of engaging people at, at a place level, which you could then build up to the, uh, to the sort of ICB level and, and then say yeah. as a collective, we actually, we are all kind of, we all think that children, young people and mental health are the key and prim- sorting out primary care. Those are the, we obviously have to deal with the weight in this, but one, you know, and get the money right. I'm already up to five, right? That, and we've we've talked people through, we've explained it. And so it's not like we're not going to be looking after these people, but in terms of where we put our development effort, you know, these are the this is we're going to really focus on a, a small number of things and do them well. Um, and I think that 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 is viable. Um, and the involvement of local politicians in that perhaps gives them perhaps a little bit of legitimacy for pushback to the centre if that's necessary. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. So just thinking about giving ICBs and place leaders time and space, how do you think those leaders can get past the constant immediate pressures to make to make time for themselves to work on their relationships with other leaders within the system and also the cultural elements of successful place working? Because this is something we come up against in mutual ventures quite a lot that we're trying to kind of get people interested in doing some of that relationship cultural work and they're they're pointing at the pressures that they're under saying come back to us in two three four six months yes that's a really difficult question so one of the things i think is the ability of the the icb leadership to cry and we've seen this actually we have quite a long history of research and, and thinking in this area that but places that have done this well have often had the leaders who are prepared, who can put up a bit of an umbrella um, 
and, and protect the system a bit from, from some of those downward pressures. The fact that Energy Zealand has got, also has got a series of vertical programs that, that comes sort of straight in, like cancer and mental health, is an, it complicates that and makes that a bit harder. The, the problem with that model, which we've seen, we have seen work of the sort of creating the umbrella and then saying this is important and now you're going to focus here and I'll protect you for these other things. I mean, is that it's often only available to organisations already doing well. So there's a sort of unfortunate circularity in it, which is you know the people who perhaps most need that space and time are the ones least able to create the umbrella. Um, so so the second thing that needs to happen, therefore, is energy England really do need to rationalise the extent to which it, it, it's engaging in sort of top-down monitoring and, and uh, template completion and uh, coming in and directly, you know, following up the sort of the individual policy silos and, 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 and vertical lines that it's interesting. Yeah. So, so, so there's some behaviour change here. Um, History is not that encouraging in the... Uh, uh, it's encouraging in, you'd be encouraged to believe that people will say that they're going to do that. You would not be very wise to believe that they will. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Um, so let, let's try and make this real for listeners and take an example. So I think a great example of where better joined up leadership within a place in commas is needed is children's health. So all of the ICB plans that I've looked at include really ambitious objectives in terms of children's health, like giving them the best start in life supporting children's mental health, which I think you've mentioned already in this discussion. So the NHS alone, as we know, cannot hope to achieve real progress on this on its own. What would the right sort of enabling leadership in a place look like in a practical sense in your mind? Yeah, um, so I think, as we get back to the point we were making earlier about, you know, clarity about what's important. Uh, I, I the courage to move away from the traditional way that we've been commissioning and holding people to account. Um, sort of the, the, the approach that says, you know, um, do the right thing for this client group rather than deliver your contractual obligations on your, or meet your caseload or, you know, um, so I think it's sort of a bit of, a bit of willingness to experiment with different ways of enabling teams and frontline professionals to work to solve problems. Um, which means a willing to take a bit of risk, which you know, particularly children's services is enough to make people run run for cover. But um, I think the, um, uh, the example that we heard, for example, uh, in your seminar in uh, Gateshead, I think wasn't it? Of, you know, yeah, Mark Smith was, and and Mark, Donna yeah. Hall. It was yeah, changing yeah. futures, Northumbria, the liberated method. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it's the ability to to really uh, provide people with a method. Or change. I mean, I think one of the problems that we've had with quite a lot of, I mean, use the word leadership, and that is important here, but actually I would also say management and method is important as well. And in, that, yeah. in some ways, you know, the leadership sets the direction, gives people the space, underwrites any risks that they're going to take, but, but the key that, but on its own, without a method, without a theory of change, without a, a theory and methodology for change, um, uh, yeah. Then I don't think you're going to get very far. So I think we we we, we, we overemphasize. Um, uh, I mean, not not the leadership is really important. Don't get me wrong, but I think I would I would be wanting to see uh, those people providing uh, support for some for, for people working in different ways, which are more focused on the needs of the the whole needs of the individual rather than the delivering the products that the organization is responsible for doing. Yeah, exactly. I think um, you're absolutely right to focus on management and method, and I'll ask you about that in a second. But it's quite interesting in that conversation with Mark Smith that you noted, um, he was quite clear that he felt that his ideas were not compatible with the current way leadership is as in it's not enabling enough and I thought that was quite interesting that you need to start with leadership that's prepared to let things like that flourish. I suppose the challenge for leadership is uh, they they really need to be giving permission and enabling and this Mm. does involve them in taking quite a bit of, of, of risk and it runs into a problem that quite a lot of the role of people in the sort of middle tiers of organisations' job is to keep things stable and to keep them running 
um, and, and to some extent, I think at their worst, to patrol the the boundaries of their organisation and keep them I, safe. I want to I want to ask you specifically about this. So let's say, right, let's let's create a scenario for listeners here that the various leaders within a place NHS council are all committed to work, working more closely together. How do they make sure that the middle tiers buy into it? So these are not my words, but some describe certain middle management layers as the frozen middle or the permafrost, which might be quite harsh, but that's the term that some people use for potentially the reasons that you've just described. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, yes, and I think it's probably slightly unfair. Um, yes, I know. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, this, so this, the, the I've been told I can take risks and uh, change the way things work, um, and then uh, think something goes wrong or my budget control isn't quite as good as it should be. Will they remember what they said? Will, you know, I think the sort of having a confidence that actually uh, you're asking people to sort of break out of a set of habits about the way they're working, um, and that they. Some of that is based on a set of expectations they've got about how the people above them will respond. Um, and uh, also a lot of these people may not have the relationships with their counterparts in other organisations that the people above them have. So they've still got a piece yeah. of work to do to develop their own relationships. So, so I, think, I think it's a bit unfair to, to blame those people. The other thing is, uh, actually, we're then asking them, we've been asking people whose job has been to maintain and run things, to change them. And actually, that's not straightforward. That requires a set of skills and knowledge and, and, and risk-taking that, that they may not... And extra capacity. Extra capacity yeah, as well. Absolutely. You know, I'm fed up listening to people who think that reform is an alternative to spending. You have to fund reform. Yes. I, I, there is a slightly odd cultural thing in the NHS, which I, I, I doesn't seem to be such an issue um, in local government, but um, the managers to change through meetings and the, the need to be at all the meetings and the anxiety that if you're not at the meeting somehow, as opposed to going and doing things, as opposed to... Yeah. So I think there is a sort of cultural issue here about the approach to change. But the main thing here is those people in the middle having the confidence that they'll be supported if it doesn't go well, having the skills and knowledge to be able to do it, and as you say, having the space and time to be able to... to yeah. and some investment behind them to help them. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you really quickly just about what you mentioned there about meetings? So I sometimes find it quite hard to, to get in the diary of senior leaders and even middle managers within the public sector because they're they're constantly in meetings. And I do sort of wonder, as you've suggested, I'm in agreement with you, are all these meetings necessary and do they have to be meetings? <laughs> You know, it just doesn't leave much room for the doing and the thinking. It's something I've always meant to study a bit because it's, it, it does think people looking in on it. And when you actually talk to the people involved in it, they know that there is a degree, that some of this is a bit bizarre. Uh, there is a performative nature to some of these meetings. Um, uh, it's not clear they make decisions. There are quite a lot of people at meetings who say nothing. Um, yeah, there is, uh, and are and are typing away at something else whilst they're supposed well, to be at the do, meeting, doing their emails in the meeting. When I did, look, I started to, to look at doing a sort of study on this and asked people about doing a diary study, and um, and we I discovered you know one ambulance services manager who uh, virtually spent his entire working week in either in meetings or driving between them. Um, and I asked him, when did you do your emails? He said, well, obviously, a lot of them were done at home in the evening. Well, that's not great. And the, and the rest were done mm. in the meetings. I just think and, it's not I very inspiring. It. We yeah. ought to be much more critical about it. I mean, it's very, it's a classic sort of, sort of, uh, sort of airport business textbook, thing, airport business book thing to say, oh, you know, get rid of meetings. I should, meetings do have a purpose and they can be useful. I just think yeah. a more critical, um, uh, appraisal of why why we're having them, why you're there, what decisions you're made, does it need to be this long, and to what extent are people feeling they need to be there because somehow they're going to miss out or be stitched up, and so I think or they'll lose status if not if yeah. they're not there. So I think yeah. understanding some of those other than just not the formal while yeah, really meeting, but actually understanding some of those dynamics about what's really going on here because it's so odd uh, that really uh, it's almost irrational. No, I, I completely agree. I doubt people spring out of bed in the morning and think, 
great. I've got a day packed full of back-to-back teams meetings. I can't wait to get at that. You know, that, this is what I thought I'd be at at this stage <laughs> in my career. I doubt that happens. So I want to move this on now to a different topic. I want to talk about regional cooperation. So this is an area I'm really interested in. And that is the question of what is the right geographical footprint to do certain things. So within the health and well-being world, you have national, NHS England, etc. You've regional or sub-regional ICBs. You have places, um, which to keep it simpler, usually a council footprint. And then you have neighbourhoods. Do you have a view on how areas should be deciding on the right level? And do you have any examples? It's, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, uh, there is a slight issue, which is that we haven't quite agreed what a neighbourhood is. It's not an uncontested definition. And the NHS has has really struggled with this question. And it's one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons why there have been so many reorganizations of the intermediate tiers uh, in the NHS over the last uh, 30 or or, or so years, which is, you know, there is a genuine problem, which is, you know, if you're small enough to have a sensible conversation with primary care, you're probably too small to have influence with a hospital. Um, if you're big enough to talk to hospitals, particularly now they or mental health trust, then you're probably too big and insensitive to be able to have a conversation with primary care in a sensible way. And and yeah. in neither of those two scenarios do you probably map onto local government uh, boundaries, some of which are really weird because not least because they seem they seem to date from the Anglo Saxon period and some of them, you know, are of questionable uh, usefulness. The, the other problem is, has been the, well, what are we trying to achieve here? Because in terms of what your objective is, then again, your your unit of, of delegation devolution will change. The, the third, the further problem is that the NHS has not really worked through where is it good to have a standardised approach that we do in once across the whole country uh, yeah. at a regional level or at a local level. So, you know, does the method for making an appointment for your GP? need to be the same in Brent as it is in Harrow. Yeah. Well, I suppose there's probably quite a few people who live in Harrow whose GPs in, are in Brent and vice versa. So maybe, but, but you know, I, I think really teasing out what, what's important, what, where does context really matter as opposed to it's special pleading to justify the way we've always done things. Um, where does scale give you benefit? Where, where is it important to have um, things that are standardised? You know, we, we certainly want interfaces to be standardised. Say, say, take the Brenton Harrow example. You might want Northwick Park, which serves those two London boroughs, for the GPs to have a standard referral process uh, and a standard pathway, a standard interface for the referral of complex diabetes patients, for example. But how diabetes is actually managed in those places you know, does not need to, you know, is not an issue if the interface with the other providers who do it are all standardised. But we haven't yeah. worked through any of the any of these questions about where the uh, sufficiently about what needs to be standardised, where the decision lies, and what's a what's a good size for doing things. So I think you know, there's a few sort of bits of emerging consensus here, aren't there? Which is, I think, you know. Uh, although not based on much science, it is interesting that actually in other parts of, of, of Europe, a uh, sort of 30 to 50,000 unit for organising primary care services seems like one that is sort of... I mean, that's the primary care network size, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah, and, that's, and, that's, and we see that in Spain, and you know, and I think it, it, it sort of it sort of spontaneously emerged from primary care itself a bit to say, this feels right. It, it, it gives us the right number of... You know, it basically keeps the clinicians you have to deal with within the Dunbar, although there's some doubt about the science behind the Dunbar number. You know, it, it, it's um, the, the, the number of relationships I have to build and sustain is manageable. Uh, yeah. Then, next, then the next level up, which probably makes sense for some services, you know, the hospital footprint's quite a good size. For health improvements, health promotion, your local authority is probably, A, because they've got the policy levers, but B, actually, they, they, you know, they got the networks. So there's, so it's different sizes for different purposes. So this is starting to emerge. I think it's a little bit more tricky at the next level up at the ICB and regional level is what's the, what's the, where the decision, where are the decision rights in that? Um, you know, what is the added value? Of the, say, go back to your children, young people example. What's the added value of the ICB in a strategy on children, young people as opposed to the six unitary authorities that might make up the ICB. Yeah. It's not clear, right? So I think no. there's a bit of 
working working through some of some of that that needs uh, definitely need, needs to be done and getting better at geography and working out what are the right geographies where you know, and, and where the where the focus is the population and geography one as opposed to a functional as, as a functional one and then maybe the place to really work on is the interfaces because that's where things really start going very often go wrong yeah and do you do you see any of that work going on kind of are you seeing places where they're really getting to grips with this i haven't i haven't looked at this particular question in a lot of okay. detail um but um I, I think as people start to build the integrated neighborhood teams and work out yeah. what those are that maybe it's too early to tell maybe it's too early yeah. to tell yeah. actually i think it, yeah i think it probably is yeah and the the sense i'm getting is that there there is an immediate pressure to take cost out of the system that's currently weighing on the minds of icb chief execs and they they seem to be in a place where they might be able to come up for air in a few months yeah. as we head into next year so let's hope they don't come up for air to find that the people that they actually need to deliver some of this have gone which has been a pattern that we've seen previously yes I think if you're if you're talking about some of the third sector organisations and things like that who do such valuable work, I, I think you're exactly right, and that that's bound to happen in some places. It's bound to happen. Yeah, I want to move on now to talk about something that I know you're really interested in, which is workforce resilience and sustainability. So, in the the, the kind of post-COVID so-called great resignation that we're experiencing across quite a lot of sectors, but certainly within the health sector where exhausted and frustrated medical staff in particular leaving the the profession. Can you explain the issue and explain your concern about it? Yeah, so uh, not just in, in this country, actually. Um, there was a recent article in EuroHealth by one of the directors from uh, WHO Europe talking about the great resignation across Europe. Uh, both in primary care and hospital care. And, and I think the, the NHS is probably suffering more than most, uh, mm. for, for a number of other, uh, other reasons. And, and it's generally explained in terms of sort of burnout. Um, but, but in a sense, that just raises another question, which is why? Mm. So, uh, two sets of, so we know from the standard theory that what, you know, what people are looking for there in job is generally sort of defined as something like autonomy, master, mastery. Um, relatedness and purpose. So I think we might think that some of that has been undermined by um, just changes in the volume and velocity of work. Uh, the amount of work in general practice has certainly gone up a lot. Hospitals less so, but the complexity of the patients they're seeing is very much greater. The work's been fragmented and split between lots of, by use of skill mix, split between different roles and, and silos to give, to give people try and some control over their work. Because we know that control over work is another predictor of work satisfaction. Um, we know from the Whitehall study, in fact, that being able to control and having autonomy over your work is a predictor of coronary heart disease and premature death. So it's actually quite an important, um, quite, an, quite, quite an important thing. And, and so the, and the sort of the, the drive for efficiency and, uh, and, and fast complexity means you've got, you've got sort of both cognitive, high levels of cognitive load and lots of moral in, quite a bit of moral injury. Many clinicians have lost sense of continuity with their uh, following their patients through on the emergency pathway, at least because of the, uh, the the sheer volume of that. And then there's a sort of second set of motivational factors, which often called hygiene factors, which is you know, do you feel valued? You know, but we've stopped. We've taken away the doctor's mess. We've stopped giving people food at night. We make them pay for car parking. We we give them computers that don't work, but that, that take ten minutes to, uh, to to boot up and need multiple multiple logins. There's poor admin and IT support, uh, to, to, so that you then that feeds back into how busy you are. So this sort of combination of loss of autonomy, mastery, purpose, and, and relatedness, and the purpose bit might be the bit that's most worrying about all of that, and then then undermining those hygiene factors. Plus, frankly, I think some not very great staff management and, and increasingly burdens and regulation, particularly doctors, you know, creates a sort of toxic list of things which makes things worse because people leave. So yeah. you then find you're working with locums and, and temporary staff. We know that that's tricky because it means 
actually. Not only are you getting a whole, because we've reorganised work, work quite badly, you're getting a new set of patients every day, which you then have to learn about. You've got new people, um, yeah. very often, who you, if you're the last professional standing, you're the one taking responsibility. Um, and if you skill mixed your workforce as well, you're now also holding all the risk for the PAs and, and AMPs and other people who report to you. So there's a sort of great big un, negative feedback loop where the problems are made worse. Um, there's not a nice homeostatic balancing component yeah. in all of this. And it's very, it's very, very worrying. And the NHS, as I say, I think it's probably got this worse than other, other European health systems. Uh, Part of the way we, we the way we we manage things. Is this the thing which will settle once we get out of COVID properly and get back to to normal? And if we can do some of the reforms that we've been talking about today, I mean, presumably that that would help the situation. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that there's light at the end of the tunnel and going to be start attracting people back in. Well, I don't know. I mean, it strikes me that. So lots of the resi- lots of the response to this is we talk about resilience, which yeah. is an absolute red flag that you haven't understood the nature of the problem. Right? It's a bit like the generals in the First World War saying we need to recruit bulletproof troops. You know, it's just not. It's, yeah, okay. it's, it's, I know. It's, cer- it's, certainly, when I mentioned resilience in the question, I meant or- organizational resilience okay, in terms yeah. of. I didn't mean individual resilience. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I, 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 I know. I, I, I was. I, I think the, my um, my reflection was that the that the, the, the rhetoric about resilience and some of the other rhetoric about uh, about how things are do not make me confident that the the root cause of these problems is properly understood. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, nor that the scale of the response to them is 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 sufficient given the scale of the problem. When you're talking about resilience, do you mean there's an attitude that people just need to kind of toughen up? Um, no, I mean, yes. So the, the the rhetoric is, yeah, we need we need people need resilience training. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Civility. Yeah, the latest is civility training. Right. Um, right. Because uh, people are rude and ungr- aggressive to each other. Well, yeah, but they're not. They weren't like that when they started work, right? No. Um, uh, people, it, it, you're, you're training people to deal with the, the fact that you've created an environment that creates that behaviour. The, the way you deal with that is to change the environment. Not to yeah. train people to be resilient or to be nice to each other. You treat the cause, um, not not the symptom. Yeah. It's just like you know, it's it's like yeah, it's civility training. I've heard of that, and it just seems a bit like teaching people to be better actors. It's not dealing with the root cause. Yeah, and I think yeah. the, actually the, the the entire um, you know one of the things that um, has marked the so, so quite a bit of my research interest uh, in health system is. A, a, a common problem, which is, I feel that people have gone straight to solutions without a real understanding of the problem. Particularly, um, yeah. issue at the political level, uh, but the rest is, we're not we're not immune to it. Of so, classic, you know, classically, oh, you know, um, our EDs too busy, so uh, let's extend GP opening hours because that will work, or let's set up a walking centre because that will work. Well. It doesn't, because that wasn't the problem. The problem was you can't discharge people. That's why your ED is so busy. You've sold, you've basically got, I mean, it's, fun, it's a nice service, and I expect people appreciate it, but it hasn't solved the problem because you didn't understand the problem in the first place. And I think this is another example where we've got a real risk that, um, you know, people, the solutions look obvious. Oh, you know, um, uh, my daughter resigned as a health visitor recently because of the, the, the basically the burnout and the, nature of the caseload that she's been dealing with and the attitudes of her managers was we need to recruit people who who, who can do this who, who don't leave rather yeah. than saying what is it about the way that we've constructed this job um that means that people keep leaving this yeah. was, was not the first i think i think there's revisionist history on whether uh, um field marshal Hague uh and his approach to troop deployment um uh, was quite as brutal and as, as thoughtless as, as we like but certainly in the in the early major engagements in 1916 and onwards, there was, a, there was definitely a certain feeling of, oh, we've lost a lot of people, never mind there's some more. Um, yeah. And that just won't do. Um, I'm reading some historical fiction at the minute that's about the Napoleonic Wars and that attitude prevails 
there. The battles are just horrific in terms of the lack of, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it does feel a little bit like that, that it's, you know, one of the big criticisms of some of the larger consultancies, not so much today, maybe, but was that they kind of recruited in young, eager people, worked them to the bone for three, four years. Law firms are like this as well, sometimes at least were, and then allowed them to head off somewhere else because they, they got their value from them. And those poor people were, I mean, it feels like we're, we're experiencing a bit of this in, in the health sector. Yeah. So I think it's, there's a, there's a, a bit of a feeling that, um, that we, we haven't, we haven't really worked through, um, how to, uh, how to properly look after yeah. stuff and, and more, more, to, so the sort of things, little things like hot food and stuff help. Yeah. Mindfulness and yoga, very nice, but doesn't get to the core of the problem, which is the way you're managed. And, and, and I think we're back to the middle manager here again, which we mentioned earlier. Absolutely crucial, vital role of supervised middle managers in providing well-designed processes and systems, resources to do the job, proper supervision and debriefing when you've had yeah. it, when when things have not been working out, solving solving the problem, solving the underlying problems rather than being clever at doing workarounds to solve the same problem again and again, which we often often do. And it it just strikes me as well that everything that we've talked about here, it's around giving people agency, giving them power over their own work, getting the relationships and culture working. All of this works towards better preventative services and cost avoidance in in the future. And I'm not sure everyone is is grasping that without the types of actions that we're talking about here, the financial problems will only build up and only get worse. And that this is not nice to have stuff. This is the focus maybe at the minute on on taking out posts and roles to try and make you know cost savings, but that's not going to solve the long term picture. It's just going to keep spiraling without dealing with some of the things that we've been talking about. So if we go back to your question about labeling leadership, um then one of the key things here and, and where those people who managed to protect their organizations really I thought were often really good is that they had a long term vision and sense yeah. of purpose. And and Almost everything you described there is a product of massive short-termism. Someone yeah. like Gordon Best, who was a health policy person at the King's Fund and was, was, was very well known, once, once made a joke to me which said that uh, many of the people uh, in, in the system think next week is strategy and the week after is the unimaginable future. Um, and he said it as a joke, but I'm not sure that now it isn't. Yeah, too I think you're right. I think you're right. So, Nigel, there's a, a, a lot in that conversation for listeners to digest and indeed for me to digest. But just as a final question, I ask this of all guests. What bit of advice would you give to someone working in or around public services who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? And bearing in mind that a lot of the listeners are people who are up and coming in their career and are wondering how they can progress and make it. Well, I think one thing is this, um, really understanding the, uh, the root causes of what's going on in a really sophisticated and, and systems thinking way, um, as opposed to, um, uh, going straight to solutions and trying to solve things. So I think that would be that yeah. one. I think this, this, the second is, is the, again, the, um, what is not, what are people not paying attention to that they should? And, 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 and think about that. Those would be my two, my two bits of advice. Um, Excellent. And the third would be have your brain wired in a rather odd way, which I think mine probably is. To think differently and to, to not just fall into the, the norm and the, the expected norms. Really, really great stuff, Nigel. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah. Good. There's a huge amount to talk about following that conversation. I felt like I, learned a lot and I hope you did too. I liked how Nigel talked about when he was at the Nuffield Trust that they like to focus on the important stuff that maybe no one else is thinking about and as I said during the conversation I really think there are quite a number of things on that list that are vitally important particularly long-term important that aren't getting the attention that they deserve so I thought that was an excellent point. I liked also how Nigel was talking about We don't need any more structural change. The structure's fine. It's the one we've got. It can work. 
a key element of this will be will people be given time to embed the structure to make it work to build the relationships within the structure to make it work because this is all about relationships in my mind um the structure is just an enabling shape to allow people to work better together and that's my firm belief and i think nigel made it pretty clear that he thinks the same how often do we hear about priorities every organization every person has priorities i'm sure we're all guilty of following the new year making resolutions that are very broad very ambitious probably quite unachievable and i think the way nigel applied that criticism to public services was really important you know can an organization even one as big as the nhs really have 20 priorities now he did say that he thought that might have been a spoof article i don't know i didn't check but the point is well made priorities need to be just that priorities it can't be a long list of everything an organization does or else nothing will be prioritized now interestingly there's an argument for devolution in here it might be quite difficult for a national organization to start deprioritizing things but if you follow through the current reforms around devolving some of the strategic decisions to integrated care boards which are much more local than nhs england ever could be then you start to get the ability to look at a particular area and particular places within icb footprints and think what are the real challenges here and can we actually develop a list of four or five priorities and i think some areas are starting to do that and it's really encouraging and the final point i want to make is the one about middle management which i think this is worthy of discussion because none of the changes that we need to see within the nhs and the wider health and care system will work unless we can change the behavior, support the change in behavior of middle management and frontline staff. And I think Nigel's point about, is it fair to ask people whose job it is to run, maintain, keep stable services, to ask them to also change the services at the same time, perhaps without any additional resources? Well, the answer is obviously no. So something has to give there because leaders can sit around a table and agree to work in different ways. But unless those changes and that those ambitions permeate throughout the different organisations within a place and impact the way those staff operate on a day-to-day -day basis, then it's really not worth the paper it's written on. So I thought that was a really great point. So that's everything for this episode. As usual, thank you so much for listening and do register to follow us on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy leaving a review, I'm led to believe that that's quite useful for ensuring that as many people as possible can, can listen to people like Nigel. So thank you very much. <laughs>